Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. This is a special edition. This is Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times. I am uh, getting rid of Aaron McFarlane for this week, or at least for this uh, edition of the podcast, and bringing a special guest, uh, Dwight Vick, former Virginia Tech offensive lineman. The name should be familiar to Hokies fans out there. Played offensive line for the Hokies from 1994 to 98. Uh, part of four bowl game teams, uh, two biggies titles, 20 starts as a two-year starter. Uh, Dwight, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm hyped. I'm honored to be on here, man. I've been circling around this for a while because you are such a, a reasonable voice uh, about Virginia Tech sports and Twitter or football on Twitter uh, where I feel like you're the best kind of fan for Virginia Tech. You're very supportive and passionate about the Hokies, but you're also realistic, and you don't have your head, in, A, in the clouds or in the sand. Either way, you always just sort of say what you think about something, uh, whether or not that's going to offend people or not. So I enjoy that, and I hope we bring that on the podcast, because that's what you come across on Twitter all the time as. Do you, do you feel like you have to fight people with that sometimes? Yeah, you know, um, that's, a, that's a good description. I kind of embrace that, because... Um, I feel like I'm I'm probably of the Vicks everybody knows from Virginia Tech. I'm more of the outspoken one, um, but not as you know outspoken as Marcus, and not as laid back as Mike. And I feel like um, a lot of the Virginia Tech fans love me when I'm the passionate, and you know when we're winning, we're excited. But I think some of them kind of get a little irritated or frustrated with me when I'm holding the program accountable the same way I was held accountable as a player. It's not like you know, I have all the answers, but I try to be honest, you know, and I know Twitter is not the place for rational, honest thoughts, but I try to be that voice of reason, whether it's evaluating the game, the team, um, personnel, or even when I played. Um, you know, I know my shortcomings as a player, and when I played, and I know what I was really good at, and I was voted a captain, and a lot of the guys that played with me, before me, and even after me, um, respect me dearly, and I respect them, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just outspoken and I'm, I'm honest, and um, I like that. Um, that's just the way I am. But it's not ever supposed to be or intended to be uh, disrespectful. Or I'm not trying to stir the pot. I don't really care for controversy, even though I know controversy usually gets more hits. And you know, a lot of times people want to talk more about controversial subjects than they do something that's just a good story. Well, heaven forbid you're not a 100% sunshine pumper all the time with this program. Uh, it's so ridiculous. So the, the reactions you get, uh, or I get certainly, on Twitter and Facebook or, or any article that I write, it's like, oh, why are you trying to tear down this team? It's like, it's not tearing down the team if you just have honest, rational thought about stuff. And it, it kind of reminded me, and they, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I feel like a, a couple weeks ago around the spring game again, uh, you know, kind of the notion of alumni relations with former football players comes up again. I know Derek Smith uh, penned a letter that was, was published a couple years ago about trying to improve the relationship with the football alumni, things like that. I feel like sometimes this whole uh, debate sort of gets taken out of context with people like, well, what, what do these guys want anyway? They want a Cadillacs to pull them up to the stadium and all this stuff. And it's, it just it, it gets so ridiculous. At a certain point, I feel like you're a very good spokesman for this. Obviously, you know Derek very well. You, you're a part of this whole uh, movement to try to have a better uh, football alumni relationship there. What what would you like to see out of Virginia Tech? What is what is sort of the shortcoming right now? You know what, I, and I really appreciate this format to say this, and, and, and I'll kind of try to clarify it after my tweet. Um, you know, but uh, my tweet 
I should say that, you know, more so we're looking for, and I speak for a lot of former players and alumni, you know, there's a there's a misconception that when you see Tyrod or my cousin Mike or Cam Chancellor or Bruce Smith or Brandon Flowers that everybody's being treated the same and we're all back on the sidelines and everybody's back for the spring game. It's more so um, what prompted me to tweet this. I've been coming back to the spring game since I was done playing, since I got, I got cut from the NFL and I tried out for a few other teams. So I've been coming back to the spring game since the early 2000s. I, pro- I may have missed one spring game. And for the longest time, the spring game was a place where many of the former players during the Bema era came back to congregate, to hang out, fellowship, kick it, catch up. And even into the ACC years, into the Tyrod years, that was the time frame, of course, the program grew, had to be more security, more structure around it, which is fine. It's to be expected. But then somewhere along the way, it got tight, and a lot of guys weren't showing up as much. Now, some of that has to do with families and guys coaching and guys getting older. But I think just to answer your question, Andy, it's more so about just having access and a relationship, even if Demo is still the coach, but even with Wente being the coach. Just a lot of guys I talk to just want to be able to come back and have some of that old access where we can come down on the sideline and mentor the guys that are playing now and just kind of reinforce the same thing Foster and company and Fuente are pushing, like beating UVA, the street, in Miami, what that rivalry means to us, and also just keeping the connection and the legacy connected. I think sometimes that gets lost, and a lot of guys also want a place to come together before and after games, like a tent or maybe someplace upstairs, you know, and if that costs money or we have to put in, that's fine, but... I think some fans took my tweet as thinking that I expect the same treatment as a Cam Chancellor or we want video homages and highlight videos and, and box seats. And you know what? It's just not that deep. It's just more so having a connection. And I will say um, I know since Derek's letter to the Collegiate Times, the editor letter, uh, there was a welcome back. To, and they're having another one this year. But, you know, what really prompted it when I was there this, uh, a few weeks ago for the spring game, I was sitting there with, Tyrone Drakeford, the great defensive back from the um, late 80s, early 90s, and Steven Sanders, who played receiver with Antonio Freeman and a few other guys. But there, there's just not many guys coming back. And you, you talk about the Ronya Whitakers, the David Pugh, the Willie Powell, a lot of guys are not coming back, but it's not like there's a campaign against Virginia Tech. There's not like guys are angry or bitter. Or we root for this program. Some of us think we can still coach the program. That's why we get on social media and question third and four play calls or what defense we should run. But the alumni, the football alumni, just passionate is the fans and the current student base and the alumni that didn't play sports. We care. We wear our shirts on the weekends. But I do think, um, just to be transparent and real with you, Andy, I do think that alumni relations do need to improve for football. I just think you know, keep in mind, and I'll say this now because most of these guys have graduated, I was involved from a mentoring standpoint and a relationship with guys like Wyatt Teller, Jonathan McLaughlin, uh, you know, um, Greg Stroman and Tim Settle. I'm sure you've seen that many a times, Rick Walker, Marshawn Williams, uh, Dion, and Daz Newsom, even though Daz was the UNC. Because my company, for four years, we did football camps. Even guys like Deshaun Tan and Jalen Holmes, guys I worked with closely, mentors. They were part of my symposiums, even C.J. Rivas. So my relationships, in a lot of ways, indirectly and directly influenced them, not so much to go to tech, but to just be some of the student-athletes that they have become. So you got guys like me and Lauren Johnson who coach or mentor in the, in the Virginia, throughout the state, that have an influential relationship. 
that's part of the bond we're talking about, keeping that legacy and those relationships going. I think some fans took my tweet that um, complaining or I'm not a bitter old guy. I'm married with three children. I'm a business owner. I have four degrees. I'm licensed therapist. Um, I do radio with Danny. <laughs> I'm very blessed. I'm not needing attention. It's just more so I am an outspoken person. And I think, you know, if you look at other programs, things need to improve in comparison to speaking. I was going to ask, what what do other programs have? I mean, when you, I think I've seen Miami and Georgia and places like that referenced. What do they have that the Virginia Tech maybe could add? Well, I think, I think you know, you got a lot of guys that always, well, we need tickets, we need tickets. Look, I know you got to donate money. I think, for the record, Fuente is doing a great job with the program. I, I mean, I love what he's doing with the program, and I think, they head in the right direction. And I think we're Babcock's one of the best ADs in the country. That's 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 oh that's stated. That's I've said that on Twitter, I've said that, you know, to on on Daniel's radio show. But I think in comparison when you compare comparison, excuse me, when you look at other programs, even inferior programs, there's a place to congregate, to hang out before and after games, a tent or a place that's roped off for football players. I think a lot of fans not a lot, but some fans that read my tweet, they were thinking that like, you know, people thought we wanted cars and hotels locked off and 55 tickets for me and my distant cousins. It's not about that. It's about guys like DJ Parker being able to come back. You know, there's many of us, Andy, that have not been in the indoor practice facility. Not to go back up there and sign in, but, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where it's not – we don't have the access I think fans think we have unless you are a current NFL player or someone, like I mentioned, my cousin or Cam Chancellor or Brandon Flowers. And for the older guys from the 90s and early 2000s, I think that, you know, we have egos and pride. And I think that's hard to swallow when, you know, to be very blunt, 95 through 99 is, is, is huge because that's been the foundation for the streets and the program that we have now in Virginia Tech. Um, and that's, that's critical. And I think – you got to keep that going, and and that's one thing. And I, I even in my tweets, I talked about how Miami has been through a plethora of coaches, and yet they still have that connection with young and old players alike. And I think that's what we have to get better at. Other programs, you know, have a place to meet, and they have some type of system in place. And I know I recognize money and budget. I know Virginia Tech is not Clemson as far as money, and I know we're not Florida State, and we're not Georgia, and we don't have SEC money. But at the same time, we definitely are a top-20 program. Um, and I think Witt knows that, and I know he's doing a good job, but I think just simple stuff that could be done is, you know, some of the frustrations of um, things that we're looking for as far as football alumni. Have you reached out to anybody recently, I mean, since the spring game, and talked to anybody? I mean, I know they used to have Kevin Jones as sort of that liaison. And yeah, I don't know if that was the perfect role for him. He was kind of an introverted guy, and, you know, he was one of those stars that was on <laughs> campus. So I feel like he would talk to a lot of the other stars because he could relate to them, uh, maybe less so for sort of the grunt work guys. But have you talked to anybody at Virginia Tech about this stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've talked to, um, well, when Kevin Jones was the guy, we had a, a quite a bit of a conversation. I'm actually on the board even though I haven't been part of too many recent conference calls with Chad Beasley and company, a football alumni board, we were told that we need to get more organized. So um, Chad Beasley and company, former guys, formed the football alumni board. Uh, Mike Gordon and some other guys that played in different eras and generations. I, I was talking to KJ a lot. And I will say KJ is a great guy, but he is not outspoken like me. <laughs> but he was he was working closely with um, – went and we were sending his inf information request to, uh, via Kevin and they were reviewing it and they were working towards it but then KJ stepped down and there was a gap in place 
Right. But since my recent week, um, I had some good conversations with guys like Andre Davis, who's at the program, who's a good friend of mine. We're close. Played together. Talked to Justin Hamilton, who recently got promoted. Um, and I also talked to Buff Foster, who coached me. Well, not directly, but he was one of my coaches for uh, my five years at Tech. So it's not like I'm bitter. I'm not welcome. It's not like I'm trying to make this a 30 for 30. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm trying to make this about me. I'm happier because of my access with VP School. 247 Sports and Broadcasting and even Danny and Kyle Bailey, I've had access. I go to road and home games when I can, but I'm just more so looking at, you know, trying to bridge the gap and along with other guys, I'm not going to be negative. Um, I'll be honest with you, Andy, like I'm always, I did delete the one tweet that was misconceived. You know, people thought when I said this is home but we can't get in the back door. I deleted it because people took it the wrong way, but, you know, you follow me on Twitter. I'm, I'm that way. Um, and, you know, it's just who I am. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, someone that stirs the pot, but I'm going to speak my mind. And I think this is something that can be resolved. And, you know, for people listening, um, I do think it's going to be. I think it's improving a lot. And I think fans need to remember, um, you know, their former players are not asking for their name to even be on the big screen or their picture. We're just wanting to have some of those things that we had in years past and maybe some systematic approach in place, something structured where we can have, okay, here's the cap on this many tickets, so we're asking you guys if you want a space here, pay this a month or annually, it's going to be over here. Or here's, like, I suggested to Kevin Jones, like a uh, football pass where you pay an uh, annual fee, you know, maybe let's say it's $375, and you sign on, you get a picture, and then when you show up, you, you show your ID, and that way, if you violate the terms of the agreement, then you lose your pass for a season or whatever. If you want additional people, you pay stuff like that. But other programs have it. I mean, I'm, I can't speak for every ACC, Big Ten, SEC program, but of course, I played against other people. I know other friends who coach uh, at Tennessee and other places, and it, it, it's vastly different. And every program, and I will say this, Andy, and I'm not saying this because I am a Hokie, I'm being honest. I'm very aware that every program, including Virginia Tech, has its financial challenges, and Wick can't make everybody happy. He's got to worry about other programs as well, but football is what moves the meter with Virginia Tech, and I think it's important to make sure that that also is addressed. And also we, we look at it from the standpoint of, you know, these other programs have benefited because of what football has done for that university. Well, moving on from the alumni uh, uh, debate there or conversation, when you, I mean, you've been coming to Virginia Tech now for 20 plus years from when you were a player to now, how different is it around the football facilities, the football program from when you first got there? You know, it's different. I'm not one of these old heads that hate the new rules and the fact that they don't have full pads all the time and guys aren't playing with broken arms. I like the fact that it's safer now. I like the fact that these guys have 9,000 uniforms and sleeves and matching socks and shoes. I think it's cool. I mean, you got a lot of old heads that hate it or they, they don't get it. I love the fact that Virginia Tech has grown. When I come back for the spring game or I come back for, um, you know, radio, just coming back, you know, during the summer, you know, just to hang out, it's beautiful. It's grown up. I was actually – I posted a video – the other day on Twitter of Mike and Andre Davis against Boston College. Again, I saw that. Gave them yeah, and it was crazy because if you look at the end zone, the seats, and, you know, if you can see through the non-high-def video I posted, <laughs> it's amazing uh, how much um, the program has grown. I love it. I, I take pride in that. And that's the thing 
Andy, me and so many guys that played, even recent graduates, love is the fact that it gets better. You know, just to give you some perspective, Andy, and Norm Wood and, and David Cook noticed about me. They covered me in high school. We're from the same area. Um, when I chose Virginia Tech and I had 30-plus offers, Virginia Tech, when it came to facilities and just exposure, we were on E. Like, we were building towards it. But, you know, you had one pair of shoes. We didn't have a contract with Nike. We had a contract with Starter. Um, we had white Oh, man, overrules. Starter. Yeah, Starter. Check That's a very mid-'90s thing to happen. Yeah, we got Nike um, in my redshirt junior year, maybe, in 97. So it's just come a long way. When I, you know, talk to guys and I see Strowman and Timmy when they come back here to Northern Virginia, I see all the stuff they have and even uh, Ricky Walker and those guys, you know, I'm happy for them. I mean, so when I get back, it's just wonderful to see so much cool stuff and not just football stuff. You know, I, I did get two degrees. I mean, the dining halls, the food, the campus. Um, they didn't have the lobster back in your day? Around. Nah, man. <laughs> <laughs> You could probably yeah, done some damage lobster. on some lobster in there, I bet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I went to one of those dining halls that had, what is it, West End or whatever. Um, I finally got a chance to eat. I don't know what the name of it is, West whatever. But, I think uh, it's West End. I, I think went, that's right. Yeah, and I went there, and I was blown away because that was conquering the dorm I stayed in, and we had nothing like that. And I'm not, again, I mean, I don't feel like I had a bad experience. It's just kind of crazy to see Virginia Tech in the last, uh, several years become, you know, a great program in regards to campus life facilities and the growth of the program and, you know, just all the things they've had. I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, again, we're not Michigan. We know we're not Ohio State yet, but I think if we can keep winning and, and we keep fundraising, um, I think they'll get there eventually. But it's cool. It's really nice. My son, though, um, you know, I have three kids. You probably hear me talk about it. I have a 12 year old son, and my oldest daughter is 14, and my youngest daughter's seven so two oldest when they come back with me you know when i told them how it used to be they 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 can't understand it they they because all they know is now it's like really i'm like yeah you know we didn't have all this so it's cool for them to see it and i showed them pictures of when i played and they you know it's like they kind of clown me a little bit because it's so different <laughs> <laughs> when you pick virginia tech I mean, that's kind of a rarity out of Hampton. I think I, I was reading up on it. It had been nine years or something like that since a player out of Hampton had come to Virginia Tech when you committed here. Uh, what was that like, uh, kind of going outside the box and picking Virginia Tech? And, and what was the recruiting pitch like from Virginia Tech? I mean, did, did Beamer visit you personally? What, what was that whole thing like? Yeah, that's a great question. Andy, um, Beamer was uh, the closer back then as far as, you know, he was out there building the program. He had taken them on probation to – they went to their first bowl berth in 93. So I was, at the time, Hampton Howe was more so a UVA pipeline. And, um, you know, when I signed with Tech, I was the first player since 1985 um, when Leslie Bailey was the last player to sign from my high school, a linebacker out of Hampton High. But at the same time, there's a story that I think the Bailey Press ran. There was some controversy around that. Not me, but when James Wilson, who played defensive lineman at Tennessee, he was supposed to go to Tech. Something in the admissions office said that he needed another math. Tennessee said he was straight, so he subsequently went to Tennessee and had an All-American career. Um, with me, um, Beamer, Hyde was my recruiter at the time. After he recruited me, he went Billy Hyde. He went back to the D.C., Maryland area, the math guy. Okay. But Hyde really sold me on the fact that we're building something. Um, at the time in 1994, 
myself, Ty Washington, Ken Oxendown, Marcus Parker, Tony Morrison, we were some of the better players in the state and in the country. And they just sold us on, you know, being staying in state and creating something. And it helped the fact that Tech that you had a record-breaking season. But, you know, Beamer, you know, I had offers from Clemson and Georgia Tech. And, and when Beamer was in my living room, I remember I got home from basketball practice. And my younger sister was like, there's too many in your living room, our living room. And I was like, what? I didn't even know they were coming. I, I didn't even know. I guess my mom set up the home visit, but my mom and dad were in the living room, and Beamer was there. And he just sold me on the fact that, you know, I was a highly touted player from an elite program, and he wanted me to come play for him and build a legacy and, and take take back the state from UVA. And it, and he also, you know, sold me on the fact that other guys were coming too, Tony Morrison and other guys like that. And he, he was, you know, people, you know, you look at Beamer and even sometimes Fuente, and you think, oh, because they're laid back, they're even killed. But I don't know about Fuente, but I get the hunch he's probably the same way. Fuente, I mean, Beamer really is passionate. Like, he doesn't, you know, get up. He's not like the coach for Penn State, you know. But at the same time, Beamer was very adamant about what his vision, and he sold me on it. And then um, it really worked out. And I just fought at home at Tech. I mean, I went on other visits. And um, it also helped Tech that, you know, some of the other schools that were recruiting, they were going through coaching changes like Clemson. Okay. other places like that. Florida was, I was actually, my dad wanted me to go to Florida. I, and like I said, I had 30, 30 offers. Florida was one of my top schools along with UVA and Notre Dame. Ironically, I was a big Notre Dame and UVA fan growing up. <laughs> oh, really? You <laughs> can admit Tony that Wright. all these years later, huh? Yeah, I, I, I do. I was, I was, you know, they had Herman Moore, Sean Moore, Terry Kirby, Chris Slade, and you know, um, and they were they were fun to watch. And you know, Notre Dame was even my more fun to watch. They were my favorite team. You know, Tony Rice and um, all those guys, man. So I was just stuck on that Florida. So my dad was really heavy on Florida. Uh, my mom's from Florida, so Florida was were actually between Tech and Florida. They were recruiting me the hardest. And Florida um, had Syria back then. And I'm not a hot guy. I don't like the heat. So coming to Tech, even though it gets brutally cold. It just felt good, and I went there. And then, of course, um, people don't know. Well, I, I'm just playing. They do know because I'm always saying on Twitter, I recruited Mike and Marcus at Tech. <laughs> um, and what sold Mike on coming to Tech along with me after I was headed out was I told him at the time, look, Ronald Curry's going to go to UVA. At the time, that's where everybody thought. But you can come here and take our program to the next level. And actually, if you talk to McFarland, he'll tell you. He did a story on me in 98, and I said that. I said in the article on me, how Mike would be a Heisman candidate and take the program to the next level. So um, Beamer sold it to me. I sold it to Mike, and, and Mike and I sold it to Marcus. And, you know, I don't know what my son's going to do, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> those those yeah. early teams at Virginia Tech or that era where you were there, it seemed like it was really embodied, the whole lunch pail, like gritty, you know, maybe not the highest recruited guys, but, the, you know, they developed into guys over time. You hear about the 99 team, and a lot of people, it seems like now, like feel like that's when Virginia Tech football started, was in 1999. Yeah. Uh, you know, college kids right now, you know, they weren't even alive when you started your career at Virginia Tech. Do you feel like sometimes people forget how good those teams were from, you know, 97, 98, the ones that you started on? I think they forget a lot, but I don't, I don't, I don't take it personal because guys like yourself and other people do their research, and I think. You know, diehard Tech has a, a, a great fan base, and I think the fans that have been around for the long haul get it. I, I, sometimes it's, it's disappointing when people forget that, um, you know, it wasn't Mike's season in 99. It was really the 94, 95, especially 95. 
with Cornell Brown and those guys and Torian Gray and Antonio Banks and Jim Drunkenmiller and Brian Steele, when we, when we made that run and beat Texas and we started off the season 0-2, you know, we had to beat a Miami team that had Ray Lewis and company. We were 0-2 in 95. And I was a redshirt freshman. I played some. But, you know, Miami's coming to your place. They needed to win. They were ranked. And we were 0-2. Had two bad home losses to start the season. And you make that run, finish the season in the top 10, you know, in most polls or whatever. I think it was just two polls back then. I think people forget, like, it was really tough to win back then because Virginia Tech was not expected to win, and Beamer was still building the program. And even though the Big East, you know, was criticized, and some people say it was, you know, a conference that was basically, you know, a second-tier conference, it still had some tough teams back then when Syracuse and West Virginia were winning programs. Boston College was a great program, and, of course, we all know about the U. And um, Syracuse had the McNabb and all those guys. It was It was a good football conference. And – I think we were tougher and, and more, you know, grimy because we didn't have guys like Isaiah Ford and Cam Phillips and, I mean, Bucky. Those guys are elite athletes. Now, I play with Freeman and Andre Davis and guys like that, but what I'm saying is we were a team that ran the ball on third and six. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's what we did. You go back and watch those games on HokieTapes.com on YouTube. My son, I watched it with him. We were watching the UVA game. He was like, Dad, this is boring. I'm like, yeah. He was like, what was the final score? I said, we won 24-7. He was like, really? It's still 0-0. I said, yeah, we're going to block a kick, a field goal, running it. You know, and that's how we won. You know, we get a couple of touchdowns, a punt return, a block kick, and we, we made that. We specialized in that. We made the game physical, and I take pride along with so many guys. That's how we won. But I do think it's good the program has evolved, but I just hope you know, over time, and that's fine. People recognize what they're doing now, but that blueprint, that formula worked for such a long time, and I think it allowed guys like Tyrod and those guys to come because, you know, you don't necessarily remember the games, but you remember the wins and you remember the records, and those early years were very critical, man, because keep in mind, you know, um, it's well documented. Coach Beamer, a few years ahead of that, had to change his staff and make some changes, and you know, ultimately, Bud Foster became a D.C. and the rest is history. But that that lunch cell mentality, Andy, and that attitude we had, you know, guys that watched us play and guys that played against us, they knew. And I remember one time on um, the game day, post-game day, when Mark May and Lou Holtz were doing it with um, Andy Reese and those guys, and Lou Holtz was talking about how Virginia Tech, you should just run the ball down your throat. But at the same time, I'm not a – I'm not an overhead football purist where I, I think that's the way it should be now. I think, you know, you have to be able to score, and I think it's good that we've evolved. But those those programs set the tone, um, those teams, I should say, for what we have now. You played with a lot of really good players at the time. Uh, two parts here. Who who was the best player that you played with on those Hokie teams? And, and give me a, a player who was really good that maybe didn't quite get his due from the fans or onlookers. Woo! Oh, man, I, I, I can't really narrow it down to one. I, I'll probably say, you know, the smartest player I ever played with, I, th- I knew he was going to be a coach. There's two guys that come to mind. That's um, Torian Gray and Lauren Johnson. They just were just so intelligent. But the best player that people forget about because, you know, we didn't have social media and all this all access had to be Cornell Brown. And, the, and this is going to sound crazy. I didn't play with him, but I was on the team one year with him with my cousin Mike. And Cornell Brown was so special because he could have left early his junior year. I mean, he 
he was just a beast off the edge. At the time, coming out of E.C. Glass in Lynchburg, Virginia, he was number one linebacker in the country. Lou Holtz, Notre Dame, wanted him badly, and he chose Tech. You know, and that's only off, you know, that's after a 2 8 1 season. You know, he came to Tech, and he was an immediate impact player. I mean, and again, Antonio Freeman would be up there, Brian Steele. I mean, those, Antonio Freeman was never a fast guy, but he ran the best routes I've ever seen. But as far as, you know, top two, it's, you know, Antonio, I mean, Cornell Brown and my cousin Mike. Mike, you know, I tried to tell people, I think he was just overshadowed by Ronald Curry, and God bless Ronald Curry because he was the Gatorade National Player of the Year in two sports, in football and basketball, and he was special in high school. And he played for my high school, same high school that me and Tyrod Taylor went to. But Mike, when he got to Tech, I mean, you could ask guys to play with me and after me in practice, especially his redshirt year. I mean, in 7-on-7 seven and seven Pascal, he would throw the ball with ease. And he was just – you knew he was special. And, I mean, you knew Beeman hit the jackpot. So those two guys were great. And the player that you probably, you know, people don't really appreciate or remember that much, that's a tough one. Um, there's so many guys because Tech was so blue-collar and underrated back then. Um, I don't want to get in trouble because there's so many guys. And as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be like, I'm going to text you like, Andy, I forgot about one. But, um, you know, I don't know, Marcus Parker was a great running back. He was out of Salem, Virginia. He hurt his knee coming out of high school. And he had to, you know, basically suppress his career to help the team. He played fullback a lot. And Ken Oxendine and Sharon and Lamont were the starters. Um, Marcus had his fair share of touches. Um, I don't know, man. You know, that him, Bill Connedy, and a guy who I know linemen aren't sexy and you forget about linemen, but Bill Connedy, Went to the NFL for a while. He was a center. He was somebody we forget about. You don't really hear his name mentioned along with Jim Pines and, and, and Todd Washington, but he was a special player. Um, Andre Davis, we recognize him, but people don't realize, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. He was actually getting ready to quit the football team my senior year. He's younger than me, obviously. And um, he came to my, we were playing Clemson for Road. He came to my hotel and talked to me. And Derek Smith, we talked him into saying his heart wasn't in it at the time. Really? He wanted to just focus on, yeah, true story. You can ask him. He was going to quit the team and focus solely on track. He was huh. um, the, the cousin of a former walk-on by the name of uh, Richard Bone, who's no longer alive. Him and I, he was a lineman. We played together at Tech. And he recruited Andre to Tech. And Andre was in my room the night before we played Clemson, um, at Clemson, before they ever became the Clemson that we know now. And he was getting ready to walk away. And he was like, Vic and Derek, I'm just not in it. I, you know, I just don't really care for it as much. I'm hurt a lot. He was banged up. And I said, dude, you have a bright future, and just stick with it. And um, he did. And Andre, of course, we know he made history. But Andre Davis, even though he's highly touted, you know, Hall of Fame receiver, him, Marcus Parker, you know, guys like that, um, I'm sure I can think of some more. Another guy, I'll say this, and this, he's probably my number one guy, Andy, that I think fans, don't remember as much because he didn't do a lot of interviews. But if you talk to Coach Bud Foster right now, if you hung up and called Bud Foster right now and asked him about a guy by the name of Myron Newsom, oh, yeah. he was probably one of the best linebackers. Bud um, loved Myron. Well, Myron, they still show his tape now to recruits. I mean, so my number one guy ahead of Marcus would probably be Myron Newsom. I know Andre Davis became the player we all know now, but Myron is the guy when I look back, because we played high school, together and he went to Butler Community College at JUCO in Kansas and he came to Tech for his last two years of eligibility but 
that 95 team and 96 team, he was phenomenal. I mean, he listen, true story. We were doing middle drill, and he, we ran three plays. I was on offense, and he was on defense. We ran three plays. He made three straight tackles, and Bud Foster, and I quote, said, get out of here, Myron. Get out the drill. You're going to kill somebody. It's not even fair. <laughs> <laughs> Myron Newsom was that good. I mean, you're talking anybody. I know we played in Nebraska in the Orange, um, Orange Bowl when Nebraska in 96 was the two-time defending national champions. And Tom Osborne said uh, to Myron, I mean, in the news clippings, press conference stuff, that if Myron Newsom was a little bit taller, he'd be a first-round pick. He was just undersized. Yeah. Um, he, he went undrafted. But I don't, you don't really hear his name called with the Vince calls and the DBs and uh, Ben Taylors. And it's not unfortunate, but it's sometimes, you know, hopefully people recognize they go back and watch tape how impactful he was. I mean, he was a really, really special player. One of the best I've ever seen do it. You know, you just don't hear his name. You know, you hear it now maybe because his dad's and Dion knew some, but not like when you talk about all-time great. Now, I called you before the West Virginia game because uh, it was late in the week, and I needed to get somebody to talk about the rivalry, and you were a goldmine with West Virginia stories. It was great and talking about you know liquor bottles flying at you on the sideline, how they kept telling you to keep your helmet on. <laughs> To avoid that yeah. kind of stuff. You obviously had a lot of great rivalries in the mid-90s, West Virginia, Miami, UVA, Syracuse, Boston College. Which one of those was your favorite team to play? Was there one that you just oh, really enjoyed more than the rest? It's a tie, and it's not UVA. I'm sorry. UVA, it was intense, and they were back then. I always tell my son and my friends, I've said this on Twitter, they were good back then. They were ranked, and they had household names, the Barber Brothers, but they're two Probably number one would be Miami, and West Virginia is 1A. West Virginia was so fun because they were so much like us. You know, they're in the mountains, and, you know, they're a great program, but a lot of times they get slept on because of, you know, where they're at. But, hey, man, they were good. You're talking about Thornton and Fields and um, Mark Bolger, Amos Dareway, and Sean Foreman, a receiver out of Indian River who torched this one year in Morgantown. Morgantown was tough, but my favorite is Miami, only because of the U. And that's the fact that Miami, you know, even now, I mean, even though know, I think they only would have two bowl wins in the last 10 years, they still move the meter. They're like the Cowboys. The Cowboys haven't won anything significantly in years, but when they come on, you're going to watch. You're going to root for them or against them. And that's Miami. And when you went to the old Orange Bowl, you would be warming up, Andy, and you look on the sideline and you would see Bernie Kozar and Jim Kelly and all these guys and, you know, Warren Sapp, even though we kind of played during the time frame. You had a good idea of, like, what it meant to even play Miami. And, they, you know, when I played in the old Orange Bowl and they came out the tunnel with the smoke. So Miami, and, they, and listen, even now, not so much now, but even now they talk trash. But, Andy, trust and believe, you talk to anybody that played during – the 90s and the early 2000s, they talked trash. I'm talking about the stuff that they did when we played, they can't do it now. That videotape when they did the 30 for 30 on the Miami Hurricanes, they're all about the U, oh, yeah. about how that video. I saw that video, me and my teammates. We had, everyone in college football had to watch that video. 80% was the Canes. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, when I graded out against the Canes and had good games, it was great. You felt like you belonged in, you know, at the highest level. And it was cool to play against Miami and experience that and go against guys. You know, I played against Dan Morgan and Damian Lewis, uh, Nate Webster, uh, Edrin James, 
Santana Moss, Reggie Wayne. They, listen, they might have been on probation. They might have scholarship limitation, but they had household names even when we beat them. And I think saying I never lost them was really cool. Uh, my, my years I played and the years I was at Tech. And, and even now, the other day, literally three, four days ago on ESPN Classic, they were showing a 97 Miami Virginia Tech game. You know, huh. those games, 97, 98, my senior year, we went to overtime. We won that the old Orange Bowl. They were jumped on us, I think, 13-3. and three, We came back and won. I mean, you know, uh, those matchups, Miami, it was intense. And it's not like we were sitting there like, oh, we're from Virginia and, you know, we, we're timid. We would get right back into them. And, you know, years back then, we had quite the contingency of Florida guys on our team. So Ike Charlton, Anthony Midget, Lauren Johnson, Torian Gray, we had a lot of guys that that was, uh, that was their UVA game. That was huge because, you know, Miami is such a great program, and many of those guys grew up watching them. So we were, they really knew what it meant to, to play against those guys. So um, Miami's the, the best. With Boston College, there were moments, and it was tough. It was physical. Uh, West Virginia has already told you. UVA was great because it's in-state. But I think it means more now because it's for the Coastal and it's conference play. Um, not to minimize it back then, it was a huge rivalry, and both teams were really good and they were ranked. But it, it, was, it was almost like, okay, we got to play this game and it's important. And I, but you knew half those guys. And there was vitriol at times, and there was some you know, fights and everything like that. But Miami was our rival. And anybody that played during that time frame will tell you, you might have a few guys that say UVA, but um, it was more of a rivalry back then between us and UVA because we would win two, they would win two. We would win one, or they would win three in a row. You know, it went back and forth. Um, but Miami, it was, man, I get excited just talking to you about it because <laughs> um, of the guys I played against and how, you know, you talk about guys like Dan Morgan. And like I told you, when you when you win the old Orange Bowl, the old Orange Bowl, um, you know, you just you could just feel the history when you were doing pregame warm-ups. So you went 4-0 against them, and they were still talking trash that whole time? Oh, man, look, the Miami talk trash now. I know guys from Miami now, even their fans. They, I mean, that, yeah, they, yeah. look, we, we ran on their sideline and said, 4-0, you can't beat us. We beat them in 95, 96, 97, 98. And um, they still talk. I mean, yeah, that's what they do. It's just their persona. I mean, the whole it's about the you and all of that because that's just how it is. Miami, you know, it's 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 like certain programs will always have that mystique and mindset that they are supposed to be like that. And I don't know how it is now on the field. I watch the games. I see glimpses of it. But back then, oh, yeah. Because keep in mind, and this is just my personal opinion, but Tech was never supposed to be what Virginia Tech is now. So when we came on the scene, and beat them in 95, Santana Moss and Reggie Wayne, those guys, they, I remember, this was, they said it was luck. It was luck. And, it, you know, we, we shouldn't have beat them, and we got lucky. In 96, we did it at Miami in the Orange Bowl. We won 21-7, to the notorious interception by Keon Carpenter for 101 yards. And then in 97, we beat them, but, oh, we won scholarship limitations. 98, we beat them, and then Edron James, and then we forced four turnovers against those guys. I think he had two fumbles. It was always an excuse until finally in 1999, the fifth one in a row, they said that Mike was overrated and, you know, he, he wasn't a Florida guy and Tech got down 10 nothing, and they scored 43 unanswered and won the game, okay? So, and that's and that the year Virginia Tech went to the national championship. That finally shut them up for a while, and then, they, you know, they had the resurgence. And even in um, 2003 with DeAndre Hall and Ernest Wilford and Jake Grove and company, 
they came to Lane Stadium. Like you had like a, a awesome winning streak. I can't remember the number of games. It was like twenty eight or something like that. I actually yeah. covered that game when I was in Danville. I, I came out to cover that game. Yeah, that was a great game. And D Hall set the tone with the strip of Roscoe, and we blew him out there. But even that game, if you remember what you do, you covered it. Had to be like fifteen fights on the sideline. You know. Yeah, it, it got a little heated on that one. Yeah, because you had D'Angelo Hall, who was more outspoken than me. You had Kevin Winslow, who's outspoken, and you had all this pride and Bush Davis and those guys, and that, and you know that that was why I loved that rivalry. And they always felt that the Big East was theirs, but every time you look back, '95, '96, and even '98, we were in their way, and that's what made it a great rivalry. As you've always said, I love your stuff, I read your stuff all the time. A rivalry when it means something and matters, and both teams can win it and have won it. And that's what made that, to me, the best rivalry at the time. It meant more, in fairness to UVA, that was huge. And Beamer would probably tell you UVA, Coach Beamer, but Miami, to me, meant more because it was for the conference. You mentioned uh, Michael earlier in the, the podcast and how you were sort of his first lead recruiter, getting him to Virginia Tech. What is your best Michael Vick story? Maybe anything that some you know hasn't been told a whole lot out there. Obviously, you have a, a long history with him and know him better than a lot of people do. Um, I got a few stories with Mike. You know, like um, I remember one time um, when he was a red shirt, Beamer put him in with the ones, the starters in practice, and um, Mike was so soft spoken and humble. He came and they called the play, and the guys were like, "Speak up, man." You know, damn, we can't hear you. You know, all these seniors and juniors, and Mike called the play. And then later on during practice, I pulled him to the side, and I was like, you know, cuz, that's what we say, cuz. You know, we're like, you all right, man, you got this, man, go ahead. You know, we got Al Clark, he's a starter, but do what you do. And he was just like, man, Dwight, man, y'all got me in there with all these grown-ass men and beards and stuff, man, I'm not ready for all this. Um, he just was so overwhelmed by the moment. You don't think of Mike being that way because he's even more confident than I am. Um, and then there's other stories, like um, people don't know this, but when I mentioned Miami in 1998, Mike was a red shirt, and Al Clark took a beating that game. I mean, I thought we protected, but Miami, they were so physical. They Nate Webster and Dan Morgan, they beat him up. They hit him late. They hit him. And he was literally playing on one knee. And I remember that game. I didn't think he was going to make it. Like, he was calling plays with tears in his eyes. He was, he was uh, making faces because he was in so much pain. Mike ran, I remember doing it, um, we were on offense on the sideline, defense on the field, and Mike ran to Beamer. He was like, Coach, put me in, burn my shirt, I don't care, put me in, I can win this. And Beamer looked at him and was like, nah, you know, he, he told Mike, you know, you know, go sit down, move away. But, you know, Mike was that kind of competitor um, where he always felt like he could make a play. And the other things like that, I remember when him and Ronnie Whitaker were talking trash to Emma Johnson, their first year at Tech, Emma Johnson was a receiver. And Mike was like, you know, you know, he was fast, obviously. And guys, you know, football guys, the bravado, the, the trash talk, that happens even on, you know, you know that. He covered football and basketball. But Mike got to talking trash with Emmett, and he was like, all right, let's go. And they went, and I don't even, I don't even think, I think Mike had either slides or flip-flops on, but he <laughs> smoked them. And that's why I wasn't surprised when he beat Shady McCoy that one time. You know, he, he just, he just was fast, and, and you know, when he got more confident or when he knew he could do something, um, you know, there, there's other stuff um, from bowl games. I was only there one year with him for a bowl game, and we would talk and hang out. Um, 
But Mike, you know, the thing that's so crazy about Mike is when people say, how is he, you know, he's a Virginia guy. He likes to fish, play golf, play video games, and spend time with his kids and, and hang out. Like, I mean, you know, he doesn't, he never really was about me or, like, look at me, which is, you know, why people were so surprised years ago when he got in trouble because he's really a good dude, really a good guy. Um, you know, he he would always, you know, he it was weird when he got there because then, you know, um, Mike became Vic and I was Vic. So a lot of times we would always turn up, turn around at the same time. And, you know, they put the D on my jersey and he got the Vic. And I was like, okay, so <laughs> I'm already <laughs> – I'm I'm second to him. I'm a red shirt senior. <laughs> I'm a I'm a captain, but it was all good. Like um, you know, he's just a, he's just we we used to have battles on Madden. You know um, you know I'm giving you clean version stuff. You know when you and I talk afterwards, I can tell oh, you yeah. funny stuff. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Mike was um Mike was fun. I mean, even as a red shirt, they loved him. Um, he was a, a great team player. Um. And he just was, you know, we used to ride back on bye weeks or off weekends together, me and him and other guys that lived in the Virginia Beach area. Um, you know, I remember one time, it's funny seeing him with all the money now, he had a Honda Accord, and we went by uh, Walmart one time because um, he wanted to, as the kid said back then, you know, soup up his car and get it right. So we went to Walmart and bought some fake rims. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put on the car, you know, it was just stuff like that, man. But I think he ended up getting some real ones and took them off. But just stuff like that, man. I don't, I don't have anything where we were like, you know, almost, you know, missing curfew and stuff like that. It was typical, um, just teammate cousin stuff, man. And the playing Madden and C two A back when that was a game and hanging out. Um, it was cool though. It was cool, man. Like just seeing him when I got him there and just seeing everything take off for him. And I, we always talk and we've all, we, even to this day though, Andrew, me and him always talk about it would have been nice if my last year was his first year. So like, basically I was 17 when I got to Virginia Tech. I started school early. Like technically I still came out of high school in 95, but I came out in 94. So we always wonder about what if, because whether, whether collegially or even in the NFL, I always felt like, you know, it would have been great to play together. Um, so I feel like it would have been kind of cool, like kind of what you saw with the Fuller brothers or what you saw with the Edmonds brother. It would have been right. pretty cool to play. Yeah. So we talked about that a lot too. That 99 team you know, took Virginia Tech as close to a national championship as it's, as it's come. Uh, do you think the Hokies can get back to that level? I mean, I know there's so much that, t- that gets talked about this with recruiting rankings and do they recruit well enough as an as a entire uh, class to, to get that kind of talent to be able to compete with those sort of blue blood programs. Uh, do you think that it's possible that this team can win a national championship ever uh, at, at Virginia Tech? Or is that just too tough to do for a program given the resources that they have and, and kind of given the competition that they'd have to go through? You know, I wave on this question, Andy. I go back and forth because, you know, you said when we first started the podcast, I'm, I'm an even kill honest fan, honest, you know, person. You know, at times, at times I say absolutely, and at times I say I don't know. I think we can if we can keep more elite players. It was easier then because Virginia was uh, one of the best-kept secrets. And over the last 25 years, I mean, you can go back to the Lawrence Taylor and Mel Gray days. Virginia's always had talent, but I think with the emergence of Ohio State, Clemson, you know, and, and, and Virginia, not just Tidewater, but the rest of the state improving, 
guys have come down here and plucked some of our best players. I mean, even up here in Northern Virginia, um, people forget Greg Stroman was an underrated recruit, but some of the best players that year were from Loudoun. They went to Stanford and other places. So I think if we can get more elite talent and um, keep some of the better players in state and even some of the guys in that mid-Atlantic region or in Georgia and places like that, if we can get guys like that to come to Virginia Tech, it's possible. Um, when I say no, it's more so because if you don't start the season in a situation or you don't have the schedule or things don't fall your way, it's hard. I mean, right now, when you look at the projections for the fall and look at what they're saying right now, it's already Alabama, Clemson. Heck, even Florida State after a disappointing year, I heard a guy on XM Radio say, don't sleep on Florida State. I'm like, gosh, if we had the season they had last year, they would be talking about Fuente being on the hot seat. Oh, yeah. So I think, I think the perception, you know, is that Tech has to, to do more. I do think with the offensive system we have now, it's more realistic. I think I won't call them wasted years, but in years past, in the, in the, in the Tyrod years, you look at David Wilson and Ryan Williams and, and Evans and company, they had some serious potent talent, and they would be in the top ten, top five, but they couldn't finish, and they lost games that we, had, we shouldn't have lost. And that happened even when I played. We lost to Temple when we were ranked 14th, one of the worst losses in ESPN history, college football, and we lost to Miami of Ohio both on homecoming. So Tech has always had that history of losing games they shouldn't have. Even in Fuente's first year, we had a bad loss at home to Georgia Tech and a bad loss at home, I mean, on the road to Syracuse. So I think if Tech can start, keep getting more and more talent, and I think at the same time, if they can just beat the team they're supposed to beat, it can happen. I mean, I don't think it's far-fetched. I think, you know, when I played, it would have been a no. I, I remember when Jim Weaver told us that. Jim Weaver, when he came to Tech in 1997, he talked about, he told us, he was our new AD. He said, he was from Penn State. He said, you guys do not have the facilities or the program to win a national championship, but we can make it close. And true to his word, three years later, they went to the national championship. But I think recruiting and everything has changed dramatically where I think Tech now has to really get, you know, talent. I think Fuente and his staff, they have the staff to do it. The good news for um, Virginia Tech is that Clemson is held in high regard. They are the class of the ACC, and in my opinion, them and Alabama are the class of college football. And you have Florida State, which will always have a name, and, and, and Miami is much better now. So you have the division, if you can win those games, to put yourself in position and do it. And I think you wrote an article, and I think David Till did too, about when they did the history, if the playoff existed years ago, Tech would have been eligible about four times. Yeah. So that's just new. So, you know, um, it can happen. Um, it's just going to be a challenge. And not like it can't be done, but he's got to get his guys and he's got to keep building on what he does every year because you and I both know, you know, I'm, I joke about being rational and even kill, but fans are already saying, you know, with this schedule, we should be 11-1. and one. And I'm like, God. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe pump the brakes yeah. on eleven and one. I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's my whole point. I mean, you know, um, you gotta really, you gotta really, um, you gotta get your system in place. And I read one of your articles. Like I said, I read all your blogs. We talked about when um, what's the uh, uh, the Clemson coach's name? Deba, um, Dabo. Dabo. Yeah. He first got there. I think he had a six and seven season, and he kept getting better. And he changed the perception and got Clemson on the map again, the resurgence of them. And I think, you know, now you see what happened once, you know, everything fell into place for him and he got his staff and the guys he needed and wanted. So it can happen for Tech. It can happen. You know, I just think it's a process. 
Um, and I just hope that, you know, fans are patient because I tweeted about this after this on the radio. You can't, even those losses I mentioned with Fuente to Georgia Tech at home and to Syracuse on the road, that's his losses. You can't evaluate him or blame him for the previous seasons, like even that atrocious double overtime loss to Wake Forest. That was right. Beamer. That's not Fuente. So these are his wins and losses. So um, I'm confident. I do think it's going to take time, but you never know. We say this in two years, they may be in, you know, right outside the playoff and some things go their way. Keep in mind, even that one year, Andy, when they went to the BCS National Championship, there was a strong push by Penn State. And Penn State was ahead of Virginia Tech before they had that miracle in Morgantown. And Penn State lost at home to Minnesota. So with that being said, they put themselves in position, but some things also went their way. So even as great as Mike and company were in 99, some things went their way to even get them in that BCS National Championship game. Yeah, I, I don't think people don't realize how tough it is to win a national championship and just how you need everything to go a certain way in a year. I mean, I covered Auburn before I came to Virginia Tech, and they won their first national championship in 57 years when I was there, and it took Cam Newton, one of the most transcendent players in the last 25 years at least, possibly longer than that in, in college football, to come in and have a Heisman Trophy-type season uh, and on top of that, they won like three or four coin flip games that, you know, a bounce here, a bounce there. And nobody's talking about them as the national champions. I mean, they were down 24 to nothing against Alabama on the road Absolutely. Uh, in the Absolutely. last game. You need everything to go right to be able to do that. And it's interesting now they've added that extra layer. Uh, you know, the 99 yeah. team with, with the Hokies, they get to the national championship game. They just had to beat Florida State to do it. Now you have to beat two teams yeah. of that top four caliber uh, which is really tough. I mean, when those, you know, these these schools that have these kind of pipeline of talent, this this four and five star guys up and down the roster, just every single guy, you can beat one of those teams on a given night, but then to turn around and do it the next week uh, again becomes very uh, difficult. So, you know, I look at it and, and yeah, I it, see it, it, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, you you need to develop players, and I, I think Virginia Tech does a pretty good job of that. I think you look at like what Bud Foster has done. I mean, that defense is not always the highest ranked guys recruiting wise. They seem to punch above their level quite a bit. I think Fuente has that capability in offense. It would help to have a really sort of star quarterback. I think that puts you over the top. That can make up for a lot of deficiencies that are out there. But but man, it's tough. I mean, you need just the stars to align in the given season to be able to pull it off. Yeah, and, you know, we forget, and you, you, you're dropping gems right now because we forget as observers and, and, and evaluators and columnists and fans, whatever, that, you know, hey, at the end of the day, only four teams play for it. And I think fans, when Fuente came to Tech after Beamer retired, I think people were so excited, you started to realize how fun it was to win 10 or 11 games when – we got complacent with that, not not as far as coaching, but, like, we got tired of it. Like, we were like, okay, we got to get over the hump, and now you we want that again. You realize how even an 11-win season is, is huge. It's a, quite an accomplishment because those eight and four, six, seven, and six seasons, for a lot of people, it was, it was disappointing. It was hard. I mean, I joked with Norm Wood one time about, you know, yeah, if I wasn't a tech homer, um, I mean, I'm not a tech homer, so with that being said, I was happy. I was at the UVA win um, when we beat them and we finished the season 7-6 and it was a Friday night game um, on Black Friday, the first one we had. And I sat in that, it was brutally cold. And I remember sitting there like, wow, this is a great game, but I'm sure the rest of America is watching 
TV something else because who wants to watch two five and six teams battle for a bowl bid? Right. You know, so, you know, the reality is as much as we love our program, I do think it's good that Fuente has his elite in contention to win the Coastal right now because he's only going into his third season. But I do think when I say in time, I think Hickey, you know, he's, the last two years he's landed a couple of the top targets. I think, you know, recruiting to Tech is difficult. I think it's hard to recruit to Tech, not to say it can't happen, but I think he's got to keep, you know, you know, change the perception and keeping guys in state and keeping those guys that are in the region or mid-Atlantic to come to Virginia Tech. And I think that's how you build your program. Um, talent is huge. you got to have it. And it's good that we have a history of building and, and getting those diamonds in the roughs and getting those sleepers, so to speak. But it's also important that we get talent. And talent is just like you mentioned. I like Josh Jackson a lot, you know, but you got to make plays at the quarterback position. College football is all about the quarterback position. And you got to be able to make plays. I think you can, but you also got to have an old line. You got to have a running back that can break a five yard run to make it 45 yard touchdown. And as you mentioned, I keep trying to tell people sometimes the ball doesn't go your way. Um, I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, um, you know, you look at Clemson last year, they were playing great down the stretch, and then they're getting that game against Alabama. What a tough matchup to have to play them in the semifinal game versus the championship. Right. So it is what it is, but, I mean, I'm optimistic. I think it can happen, but I think, you know, I'm more patient. You know, when fans can play, I'm like, hey, man, Fuente just got here. He didn't, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's be honest. So that's my stance. I think it can happen. I've kept you for a long time on this podcast, and I thank you for, for sticking with us. I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think you'd offer a good perspective on this. And it, it kind of was formed out of that whole you know NCAA basketball quote-unquote scandal over the offseason, where, oh my gosh, these, these agents are paying these guys dinners. They're giving them, you know, thousand, a couple thousand dollars for some of them. Some of them, I realize the sums were a lot more than that, but some of them... It was not a whole lot of money, and I think when it came out, I was like, I feel like the scandal here is that I'm not scandalized by this whole thing, that I'm not taken aback, and I go, oh my gosh, the cheating that's going on with this. What is your thought on the whole uh, idea of paying players, and it seems like right now there's just such a movement out there to just sort of demonize these players for, oh my, he took uh, $50 from a booster, or like a dinner from uh, an agent or anything like that. It just seems like such a stupid debate to still be having in, in 2018. <laughs> I mean, I, I caught some heat on Twitter. I know Ricky LeBlue was, was, was all excited, like, oh, they, it's going to change. I'm like, ain't nothing going to happen. You know, like that scene in um, the Ray Finkel movie when Jim Carrey came in and like, the old man said, Ray ain't coming home. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, listen. And I love college basketball. People that know me close to me, Danny knows, I love basketball. Um, I coached my son's team. And I was not even shocked when the stuff came out. And, and, you know, a lot of times when that stuff comes out, especially during a dead period or a time where there's nothing going on, it's magnified. So people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, Duke and Carolina, they're going under. I'm like, really? You think? You know, listen, on a high school level, and I know stuff, and I've heard stuff, and I even – have seen stuff on a high school and youth football level. You hear about all this stuff going on and even small stuff like people using different addresses. Everybody that's involved in sports to some degree is going to put one advantage or a way to, you know, to get over, not so much illegally or negatively, but in a way to help their program and help their team. I think the NCAA system is antiquated. I won't go full Jay Billis on you right now, but I do think he raises some good points about 
the system being antiquated and the money being generated right now, it's ridiculous. And I know I am sometimes sarcastic, and I'm one of those cynics sometimes when I post my tweets about the fact that NCAA made this much money and the tournament made this and football made this and the players got a jacket. But at the same time, I mean, let's look at it from a big picture. What would be so wrong with having, just like we talked earlier about football alumni, would having a new evolved system in place, something, you know, because what is wrong, Andy, with some kids who just don't want to go to college? Like, I took pride in getting my four degrees, but my mom's an educator. She just retired after 40 years of teaching. My father's a preacher. He has a master's. I come from that environment. I, I took pride in it, but at the same time, I had teammates that just wanted to play ball. You have guys. And you look at what they're bringing to the universities, I don't see what the problem is. It's not like, what is wrong with wanting money? <laughs> right. What is wrong right. with saying, you know, you know, look, you know, I remember, you know, we're talking about my cousin right now. Earlier, I should say, we talked about Mike. Look, it was a team effort. That 99 team was loaded. And the teams after him, Kevin Jones, Lee Thug, Tyrod, whoever you want to mention. However, when you talk about what Mike did with Virginia Tech and the fact that when he was at Tech, when he found out he was going to the Heisman, he didn't even have a suit. And his uncle and aunt had to buy him a suit to take him. Um, they took him to, or they brought him, brought one up from Newport News to, so he could wear at the ceremony for the Heisman. His mom was still driving a bus in Newport News and the surrounding areas. Um, and yet he, along that campus, the revenue that he generated along with that 99 team and the fact that everybody was wearing his jersey and, I mean, he, he he helped put Virginia Tech over the hump and put us even more on the map. And I don't understand why there can't be some kind of stipend or system in place where he can get a piece of that. He still, he still should be required to go to class and comply, comply with team rules. But I think fans are, if you think these guys are going to take money or you think the system we have in place that governs college sports is effective and up-to-date, you're fooling yourself. And I think that's the part that, that frustrates guys like myself because it's a it's a sham. It's somewhat of a mockery. Because oh well, you're getting a free education. Come on, man. Like, look, I'm again. I'm, you're talking about somebody who has four degrees, and I'm licensed. But at the same time, you know what's wrong with us getting a piece of that? I mean, you know, when I found out when I was going to all those bowl games and getting those nice jackets and bags, half the stuff I can't find there or fit. When I found out <laughs> that those guys families, the coaches' families, and other people involved in the program were getting some of the same benefits and perks as us. Not that they didn't deserve it, Andy. They deserved it. But I think that's like, okay, well, I get it. You know, you're part of this program, so you're getting something. But you guys are getting bonuses and stipends based on our productivity. And I think, you know, now you're talking about big money. Even back then it was big money, Andy, but right now it's even bigger. It's ten times bigger. So I think when you talk about college basketball or even football, I think they need to reevaluate. The only issue is, even though it's picked up steam, you have people in place who are stubborn or feel like it's the way it's always been. Why would you change it now? And, you know, change for some things is slow. I think it's inevitable they will evaluate things and there will be something better, especially with Condoleezza Rice and them coming out with that letter or that memo saying they need to look at. I don't know if anything's going to change because of her and her team, but I think when you have people like that talking about it, it's got some push. But big picture, I'm not sure if it's going to change sooner than later. But I think when you talk about the debate, the guys wanting to get paid, the players and the people that think they should get paid, 
there's more merit now. There's more leverage. I think there's more insight into why it makes more sense than back in the day. But this notion that there was going to be things shut down, I think you'll have a few slaps on the wrist. It's like when the whole thing happened with Miami and that whole thing with Yahoo Sports reported and the whole thing with UNC. I was adamant on Twitter, my favorite place and other places, <laughs> that nothing was going to happen. I said that, and I think people now see. So, you know, unfortunately, man, it's not consistent when it comes to punishments or sanctions, but I think it's not consistent when it comes to how the system's in place and who gets what financially. And the thing that hurts me the most as far as not emotionally but disappoints me, I should say, is that when these coaches get in trouble or get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, and they're able to resign or you're fired or whatever they get fired. They can still go back and coach or go to a different school. But if a player gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, there's a stigma attached. And he's got to go through um, a, a, a bunch of questions and his his legacy is tarnished. And it's just, it doesn't make sense because once again, Andy, all I'm saying is what's wrong with a guy getting paid for his services or at least some type of it. We're talking about student athletes, a system in place, a stipend. I don't get it. Like something. And, my friends and people that are debating us, well, who decides well, who gets what? I'm not even trying to say it needs to be all this money a quarterback gets, you know, 6000 a lineman gets, you know, two. I'm just saying that some type of kickback to the players, you know, something. Um, there, there's got to you know, be – there's a name, image, likeness thing that can be done, I think. I mean, what do they call it, the Olympic model where, I mean, yeah. the star players that can command some kind of endorsement or something out there can get some money. I mean, I did, you're right. I mean, it, you should, it shouldn't be so demonized that if you're good at sports, you shouldn't be rewarded for doing that. I mean, this is why that black market exists is because that's what people want to do. They want to give money to people who are good at sports. And, and yeah, you know, I, NCAA yeah, just it, says because we've done it for so long, that's that's like the worst reason to do anything. It's because it's been done for so long. How many dumb, you know, things have been put in place, and they just keep doing it because that's the way it's always been done. <laughs> yeah, and it's this antiquated system. And I'll share this with you, um, um, and I'll give you a little nugget about myself. Um, my parents, you know, I was middle class. I didn't grow up in the hood. I mean, I lived. Um, early in my childhood, we lived in a place off Shell Road in Hampton that wasn't a great neighborhood, but, you know, there was things I saw. It was tough. Everybody knows about how it is in Tidewater, the 757. But my mom and dad are still married. I had a good life growing up. But I will say this, there were times when we were financially strapped. And even though I was on full scholarship, you know, um, my there were, there were a couple of semesters I took out from student loans, even though I was on scholarship. Hmm. I wrote about this in my column when I was um, writing for Rivals. I took out a couple of loans because I didn't have that extra money. I lived off campus, but your money goes towards, you know, your meal plan at the time, your meal plan and your um, rent check, or, you know, use the money accordingly, you know, and the money, you don't, no one teaches anybody how to manage money, whether you play ball or not. So there was a couple of semesters I took out some student loans. I just took out, I think it was unsubsidized or a staff loan or whatever, and I took it out and I, you know, I paid it off. Some of it when I got out in college before I, you know, got cut and went to grad school. But the point I'm getting at, there are a lot of guys, even someone like myself who comes from a, you know, a good place, still needs help financially. And I also think if you want to talk about, it won't help everybody learn how to manage money. But you know, you talk about my cousin Mike. I'll tell you a sad story. Not so much as disappointing, but it was it was it was a shocker for me as a young man and him. Is I remember when I talked to him, Andy when Mike was declaring for the draft, he, you know, rumors, breaking news, it was leaking and he knew he was going, everybody knew because 
it's tough to turn down being the number one overall pick. I called him. I talked to him the week of, right before it really got out. And he was like, yeah, because I'm thinking about doing it, man. I really I, I love Tech. I, he didn't want to leave, but he couldn't pass up being number one. Fast forward to when he got drafted, and he's up there with his family holding the jersey up, the Southeast jersey. Well, a few months later, we were talking, and he invited me down there because he went from the little per diem we got as a student athlete to millions of dollars. So imagine being 19, you go from $20 a week, you know, your stipend or your per diem you get for a bowl game or your, your meal plan to $90 million. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, I don't know if it was nine. I'm just giving you a rough estimate. It was crazy numbers. But the point being is, is that he went from that to a lot of money. And, he, you know, we were just talking about how it was just so overwhelming. It was just, it was crazy. So I'm not saying you need to have money in place to teach guys how to manage money, but I'm saying it couldn't hurt. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, they don't go pro, they're going to go into corporate America. Where when I got cut, I had to learn how to manage my money because I would get paid and hit the mall up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to pay for the bill. So it's a life left me with the stuff like that. So I'm, I, I just think, you know, I know, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I just think, you know, big picture, there's nothing wrong with looking at that guy's getting paid. It's not going to hurt anybody. And I don't think it would be an issue if you spread the wealth some. That's all I'm saying. Well, Dwight, this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. We've gone for over an hour at this point. Great insight into the program, uh, you know, other uh, issues in sports. I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, it's at Vic757 on Twitter, where you're very opinionated, and you like to, to answer <laughs> You like to answer from uh, responses that come off, sometimes calling people out for taking stuff that you say out of, out of context, which I love uh, to see on Twitter. But thank you for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for letting me run my mouth, man. And I appreciate um, the support and um, just talking with you. Um, I love your work. I know Danny tells you that all the time. I tell Danny, I think you're one of the best out here. Even if you weren't covering tech, you know, I think you give, you give balance insight yourself. So I have fun. This is great. Maybe later down the line I can jump on with you and um, Carl and whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. All right, well, thanks for coming on. This is uh, Hopefully we're going to get another podcast later in this week, if I can arrange it later on. Uh, but this one was an enjoyable one. Uh, thanks, everybody, to listen. Uh, thanks for Dwight for coming on, and we'll talk to you next time.